in chapter 9, verse 11, and we will come down through verse number 18. And uh, I've titled the message, Time, Chance, and Wisdom, because that's what this passage reveals to us. And uh, we're going to be looking at it together. So let's, let's begin reading in uh, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11, down through verse 18. The Bible says, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know, man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Time, chance, and wisdom. Those are the three things you're going to see woven into this text and and I'll, I'll open with this question. Is there any guarantee that things will happen as we think they should happen? That's an obvious, that's an obvious, easy, elementary question for us, isn't it? You ever been certain about something in your mind and only, only to find out the result was not what you thought it was going to be in the end? We've probably seen that in various things in life. And one simple illustration I'll give is, is regarding a, a game I once watched. It was an NBA game. It was the Houston Rockets. They were playing the San Antonio Spurs, and I was watching that game as a young fan of the Houston Rockets, and the unthinkable happened, right? Uh, They were playing the Spurs, and they were down by 13 points with less than a minute left in the game. And so when somebody's down by 13 points with less than a minute in the game, what's the conclusion? It's over, right? It's over. I mean, and so, so people think the game is over. It was hosted at the Houston Rockets Stadium. The stadium starts to empty because they don't want to get caught in the car lines. And so Houston's lost, and let's just go home. Well, the unthinkable happens. The unconventional thing happens. Uh, Tracy McGrady, he gets the ball, and he hits a three. He gets the ball again, he hits another three. He hits the ball again, he hits another three. Only this time, he got fouled. So it's a four-point play, right? And so the Spurs get a free throw or two, and then... The Houston Rockets steal the ball, and they come back down, and Tracy McGrady shoots, the th- shoots and makes another three to put them up with just a couple seconds left. And so he scored 13 points within 35 seconds. And uh, as a young, young man who was a fan of the Rockets, I thought, man, I've just witnessed something remarkable. This, is some, this will never happen again, right? See, see, things don't always end up as we think they might end up. To the natural man, our conclusion would be, oh, that game's over. There's no way they could win. But things don't always end up like we think they should or think they will. And this is one point. This is maybe a silly illustration, but it's one point that really Solomon's bringing out of this text is that things don't always appear or end up like we think they ought to, even by our conventional understanding of the way things should work, right? He brings our attention to that reality. Now, he previously made clear that, that, that 
death is inescapable to us. He's made that clear throughout the whole book. He's made clear the necessity to fear God, and he's made clear that we should enjoy the gifts of life that God's given to us in this world. You read the first half of this chapter, and he's going to communicate those things to us, right? But Solomon has also been giving us more detail about life under the sun and some of the observations that he's gleaned that really bring out some application for us. And I think it's important for us to recognize and remember these truths that God has revealed to us in his word. And for us to truly understand and grasp all this, I think it's important that we have and seek wisdom because wisdom is key, as we'll see at the end of this message. But notice with me two headings tonight, two headings, two points I want to bring out to your attention The first one is this, and the first point I'm making is that life is truly unpredictable. Life is truly unpredictable. We don't know the end result of how things work out. Even though we may think it looks like it's going to work some way, it doesn't always work the way we think or the way we we expect. As you look at verse 11, you're going to see that there's unconventional observations from Solomon given. These are unconventional or unusual observation Solomon makes. I think we'll understand what he's saying here. In verse 11, he says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. Now, it seems like the opposite should be true with those characteristics, shouldn't it? But he says it's not always that way. Now, we'll break this down for a moment. You look at what he says. The race is not to the swift. Now, in a race, shouldn't the fastest or the swiftest be considered the one who's going to win the race, right? That's the conventional, the usual way of thinking. But he gives an unconventional observation. The race is not always to the fastest. How many of us have ever heard the story of the tortoise and the hare? Anybody? That's an old, old classic, right? I'll, I'll call it the turtle and the rabbit because those are more common words. That's, that's, that's the updated translation, all right? I'll give you that uh, for, for the story. But you, you know how it goes. The rabbit taunts the turtle about being so slow. And the turtle challenges him to a race. And the rabbit's amused by this. <laughs> of course, I'll race you any day, turtle. And so I'm kind of paraphrasing this. Don't quote me verbatim. So they begin to race, and the race begins. The the rabbit takes off out of sight, and to further taunt the turtle, what's he do? He decides just to take a nap on the side of the course. Well, the turtle slowly and steadily keeps going on his way and passes the rabbit. The rabbit's still sleeping. The rabbit finally wakes up, only to see that the turtle is close to the finish line. And the turtle, with all of his might, tries to catch up and win the race, but he actually loses the race, all because he piddled around, right, in his pride. The race is not always to the swift. That's the principle Solomon's bringing out. Just because one is fast doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to win. We have a biblical example of this in a sense with Asahel. In 2 Samuel 2.18, listen to the description about him. He was one of David's mighty men. It says, And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was, a, was swift as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. We know how fast gazelles are, right? So that's the description of him. He's swift. He's fast. You ever you recall a time when Asahel was chasing down somebody, but he ended up losing that whole ordeal? He's chasing down Abner, and Abner ends up killing him. His swiftness didn't keep him alive. His swiftness did not, did not bring about or guarantee his desired outcome. Though he could catch Abner, he didn't win that battle. It doesn't always turn out the way we think it will. 
Secondly, you notice Solomon says, nor the battle to the strong. You see, just because one appears stronger doesn't mean or guarantee the victory, does it? How many times have we seen that in the Scriptures? We may have seen some real-life examples, but I can think of one pretty, pretty notable for all of us. You all remember him, uh, a guy by the name of Goliath? He's a pretty strong dude, giant, 9 foot 6 or 9 foot 9, depending on how some interpret a cubit. And uh, David, just a small little shepherd boy, I don't know how small he was, he's probably a teenager, but needless to say, he's still a boy in the eyes of the army of Israel. And David comes down there, much less uh, in strength than Goliath, and he's the one who wins the battle. Gideon and his 300 men overtaking or really defeating a, a large number of Midianites. You see, someone may train and grow as strong as they can for battle, but that's not a guarantee for the victory in the battle, is it? Here's where we see the real guarantee for victory. It all comes down to God and His providence. Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to who? The Lord. So one may make as much preparation as possible, may get as strong as possible, but that doesn't guarantee their safety or the victory. To put it in modern terms, one may wear their seatbelt because that's the right thing to do. They're preparing and trying to be safe in a in their journey in a car, but does wearing a seatbelt guarantee your safety in a wreck? No, it doesn't. So we see unconventional things, observations here. He says next, nor bread to the wise. We would think that the wise would always have food, since in their wisdom, surely that would lead them to know how to work and the importance of work and buying and providing their food, but that's not always the case. Sometimes wise people do not have much in this life, which connects to the next example. He says, nor riches to the intelligent. Surely those who are smart would be rich. Surely, right? Their intelligence should lead them to know how to make money and to grow wealth. We would think that, but it's not always true. I like to put it this way. There are a lot of dumb, smart people in the world. Just how it is. Then there are some smart people who simply just don't experience wealth and prosperity. We'll have an example of that later in our text, but notice, notice, notice this also. And lastly, he says, nor favor with those with knowledge. Knowledge does not guarantee your favor. You may be uh, very intelligent. You may have a lot of knowledge, but that doesn't mean you're automatically going to have favor. Sometimes it's delayed to those who are knowledgeable. One such example is Joseph. Joseph was very knowledgeable, but he did not experience favor until later in his life. Then there's others who are very knowledgeable, never experience God's favor, or, or favor in general in, in, in life. And so what you find with, with this is that these attributes listed, they may generally lead to what we would think should be the outcome. But Solomon points out that these attributes, they don't guarantee the conventional outcome that we would think. And why is that? Well, he gives us the reason in the text. And that brings us to letter B, is that unexpected experiences happen to everyone. Unexpected experiences happen to everyone. Notice verse 11 in the last sentence or last phrase there. He says, with regard to each of these things, but time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to them all. Every single one of these people that had these characteristics. Now, what's meant by time and chance? Well, the word time in this book generally alludes to seasons of life that come upon someone. We are all living in a forward motion of history, time and seasons of life, and history itself changes. 
and often impacts a person's life in unexpected ways. This also would include the limited nature of time in which we have. We don't have, a, we don't have an unlimited amount of time in this world, do we? Perhaps a person has many of these great attributes, but the fruit of them in their life never came to be because they ran out of time. They never lived to a point where they got to experience the results of great strength or wisdom or knowledge, any of these things. This aspect is connected later, the next verse, but ties directly into chance. Now, this I want to expound a little bit more. What does Solomon mean here by chance? Well, the concept of chance is a common way of thinking in our world that does not recognize the sovereign God who rules and governs in all of creation, over all things. The viewpoint of fallen and finite man is that many things occur in this world as a result of just randomness, no purpose, no, no, uh, no reason behind it. We have an example of this way of thinking when the Philistines, they had... They had uh, taken the ark of God, and they were being punished for having the ark of God. And I always loved reading the story where they, they set it in the temple of Dagon, and, and uh, Dagon falls over in the night, right? And they thought, man, why did he fall over? And, and the Dagon is, Dagon is basically bowing to the ark, showing, you know, it's, it's nothing but a false god. And uh, they set the statue back up, and God knocks it down again the next day, and only this time he's broken up, right? And and uh, he realized he, this, is, this is nothing but, but material. But anyway, the ark of God, them having it brought many judgments upon them, and so they decide to move the ark to different locations. And they basically uh, give, a, give a scenario here that if they move it to one, of the Israel, to one of these locations, that, well, then we know that God is in charge of this. And if not, if the same thing happens and it doesn't happen on this time, then we're going to chalk it up to coincidence or chance. We read this in 1 Samuel 6, 8-9. The Bible says, and, and take the ark, this is the Philistines giving commandment, and take the ark and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. They're trying to atone for this. They eventually make the decision, we're going to send it back to Israel. Then send it off and let it go on its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. Then it's God. But if not, then we shall know that this is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. That's their thinking. Does the Bible teach such thing as coincidence? No, it doesn't. Even though it's a very common way of thinking around mankind and our culture, there is no such thing as coincidence. There is only providence governed by God, seen in various forms and we see different causations in this world. So the word chance here, I want to clear this up. The word chance does not refer to the modern understanding of luck, karma, or coincidence. There is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as karma. There is no such thing as coincidence. If there was something in which luck could determine something, luck has to be something that can determine it. It doesn't exist. All right? So we understand there's no, there's no such thing as luck. The Hebrew word for chance literally means occurrence. Occurrence, something that happens, an event. The LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, translates this word as misfortune. We often hear that word. There's misfortune that's overtaken someone. So the use of chance here, I think, tends to flow with the translation best, but it doesn't mean what our modern culture teaches it to be. You could say that chance is the unexpected event which may throw the most accomplished off course 
despite the most thoroughly prepared schemes. It is an occurrence. It's an event. I will reference it probably as an occurrence or event more, more than chance. And when we look at life, life is full of various occurrences and events that happen to us that catch us off guard, that disrupt our life, that maybe mess up our well-fine-tuned plans, right? Our well-fine-tuned plans that we have set out, right? Because God governs all things according to His perfect counsel. And I will note that there is mystery here when it comes to the providence of God. You and I can't wrap our minds around it. He's God and we're not. But Paul wrote this plainly to the Ephesians regarding redemptive history, but it also applies to the broader scheme of history itself. It says, In whom we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, notice this, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So why do these unconventional events happen? Well, here's just a few things I'll point out. Sometimes conventional expectations have unconventional results due to God's judgment. Sometimes God intervenes with judgment to change things. Even though one may be strong and wise, God can overrule that. God can overrule those things. For example, God declares His judgment on Israel because of their many transgressions, and though they are strong and fast and wise and have all these things about them, all these positive things they could use, they're not going to be able to withstand His judgment based on those things. Amos 2, 14 through 16, he says... Flight shall perish from the swift. You're not going to be fast enough. The strong shall not retain his strength. You're not going to be strong enough. Nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. In other words, God's saying, you're good with a bow. I've got someone with a better shot. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. In other words, God's saying it doesn't matter how strong and swift you think you are, you're not going to be able to overtake my judgment that's bringing, coming upon you. Sometimes unconventional occurrences happen for other reasons, such as God simply teaching and growing His people, bringing them to a better end that they did not realize was even possible. Think about Joseph and his betrayal, the evil his brothers brought upon him, what he experienced. Providence governed the whole thing. Providence governed it all to bring about not only Joseph's good, but ultimately God's glory and the salvation of his people by which the seed of Messiah would be preserved to come into the world. There's a whole big picture to Joseph, way bigger than we realize. Sometimes God allows the evil of man to show the depth of their depravity and the necessity of his justice and judgment. You understand that seeing evil and the reality of sin shows us why God must punish evil because he is just. Because he is holy. He's also merciful and gracious. But you understand that if there was no such thing as sin or evil, we would never know that there's such a thing as God's justice and righteousness either in that sense. His judgment. I mean, you think about just, for example, the recent terrorist attacks of Hamas. We've all been uh, in tune with that, haven't we? It's tragic. It's It's terrible what is happening over there and what they have done. But you understand, it, it, it's gross evil in humanity and shows that how evil humanity is when they're given over to their evil. If God would not restrain mankind in some degree, everybody would be capable of such heinous acts. 
But what you find was with this evil is that it necessitates the attribute of God's justice and wrath on mankind's evil. People say, why is God just? Why must he bring judgment? Because of sin, friend. Because of sin. I'll give you a few, few quotes on providence that I think display this well, better than probably I could say it. Samuel Chaddock was a Puritan of long ago. He said, as God created the world and all the creatures therein, by his almighty power, so the scriptures teach that he upholds, directs, disposes, and governs them all by his providence. Nothing so casual, but he disposes of it. No agent so free as to be exempted from his control. No affliction or evil of punishment, but he has a hand in it. But as for sin, and this is very key, as for sin, he neither is nor possibly can be the author or approver of it. Very important to understand that difference. So in every occurrence or chance that we would say, there is no lack of God's providence, though the direct cause of certain things may vary. And we may not understand the purposes immediately. We often don't understand why certain things happen. We may ask, well, why did this happen in Israel? I don't have the answer to that. Do you? God does, but I don't. It's not my business to know. The one thing I do know is that God is just, and those who are evil and exacting such wickedness, they'll get what's coming to them. There is, you, you imagine if God wasn't just? What if men did get away with evil? If they don't, they don't experience justice in this life, guess what? They're going to get it on the day of judgment. So that's a point of comfort for us Christians. Thomas Brooks also comments here on his providence. He says, providence is thus in this life is the map of changes. That's what Solomon's pointing out, the events that bring change to our life. Providence in this life is the map of changes, the picture of mutability. We're not immutable. We change. Life changes. Who can sum up the strange circumferences and rare circuits and labyrinths of providence? Providence is as a wheel in the midst of a wheel whose motion and work and end in working is not discerned by every common eye. And this truly gets to the point of Solomon's words that what seems to be the conventional outcome is sometimes overturned by time and chance under God's hand. Now he further expounds this point in verse 12. He says, for man does not know his time. What's he mean by this? Man does not know what his future holds, does he? He does not know what season of life he may be entering into, nor does he know how long his life will be. And he illustrates this. He illustrates this with some plain examples for us who are fishers and hunters, right? We all like that, at least most of us, I'm sure. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So you think about it. You go fishing. You're probably enjoying your day. Throw out the hook. Throw out the line. You catch a fish. You either reel in that fish to keep it and eat it, or maybe you're going to be merciful and let it go for another day. But either way, in the life of that fish, it had no clue that that day it was going to get caught, did it? came out of nowhere. Fish is just minding his own business. He thinks he's getting a nice little worm or tasty meal. But lo and behold, it's a trap. He's caught, right? Same thing for the bird who is caught in the snare. The bird has no clue that that day he'd be caught. He's just going about his life as a bird. 
But time and chance or event occurrence changes what happens in the life of that bird or the life of that fish, and hopefully in the life of some deer in the near future if you're a hunter, right? So it's not just the snare and the fishing line, it's the bow, too, that might alter the life of a deer sometime soon. That's the way God designed it, right? We kill deer for meat. It's part of life. And it is good eating. Amen. You can say amen to that. Time and chance happen. Look how, he, look how he illustrates this. He uses the fish and the bird as an example and illustrates this. So the children of man are snared in evil time. Guess what? It's not just the fish and the bird that things happen to them, changing their course, changing their life. It happens to all of us. It happens to people. Not that people are hunting us, but events thing and things happen in our life that, that changes the course of our life and may impact us in ways we never thought. Sometimes the life of a person is caught and changed by something without notice of it even coming. And this is why man has to recognize, we as God's people especially, need to recognize how fragile life is and how much we should appeal to the providence of God when we do have things happen that we don't expect or understand. James instructs the Christians to think this way in James 4. Look with me at James 4. This is a wonderful text. James 4, you look at verse 13 and verse, through verse 17. This shows us the brevity of life and the uncertainty of things that, that we may experience. He tells these Christians, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it to him, it is sin. What's James pointing out to us? He's pointing out to these Christians who have already gotten, they've mapped out this plan. We're going to go to this town and that town, and we're going to make profit here. We're going to make profit there. They're mapping it out. We're going to just, this is what we're going to do. It's an overzealous, confident boasting of making profit before they ever get to that point. What James is reminding them is that, hey, you don't even know what tomorrow holds. You better hold your horses on being so cocky about your plans, right? He says, your life's just a miss. You may not make it to tomorrow. And he says, the boasting, boasting arrogantly in this way without considering the providence of God in your life, he calls that boasting evil. It's sinful to boast in such a way. We ought to be more mindful that if God wills, we'll do this or that. If God wills, we'll be able to do this. So our deep responsibility is to trust God and to fulfill whatever our own duties are that are required of us at any given moment. That's why he says in verse 17, he who knows to do the right thing and doesn't do it or fails to do it, to him it's sin. We have to take advantage of every moment to do what we know is right when we know to do it. Charles Bridges, I'll close this point with this quote again. I told you to share a few with you. He says, shall we then claim to know the secrecies of his providence? No. Rather, let us lie before him in silent, unreserved submission 
and leave to him the free liberty to guide and govern us in his own way. I can testify for my own self that understanding and coming to see the providence of God and sovereignty in all things has brought me great comfort and peace because I rest in him. It's not up to me to control everything. I rest in him, and he always knows what is better. They may not go like I think it should go, but if it didn't go the way I think it should go, guess what? It went the better way than I thought it should go because God is good and he's better in what he governs in our life. So since we know that our lives will be affected by time and chance or occurrences, really what do we need to live through these sorts of things? Well, here's what we need to live. We need wisdom. We need wisdom, and that's what Solomon points us to in the latter part of this chapter. Notice that wisdom is an essential need for life. Wisdom is an essential need for life. Letter A, I want you to see that possessing wisdom is better than strength. Possessing wisdom is better than strength. You see, Solomon, he really leads us here to an example of an unexpected event or occurrence happening and what made a difference in that situation. He's really going to give us an example of what he just said about things not going as we think they ought to go, the swift and the strong. He says in verse 13, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seems great to me. Now, this example that he gives is something that Solomon has observed at some point doesn't seem to be something he's making up by analogy or example. He says, I've seen this. I've seen this. Now, some have tried to speculate what specific instance Solomon is trying to bring up or reference. That's really not the important part. Most, can't, most do not know exactly what he's referencing, and maybe because of the reason that we see in the text as we go along. But you look at verse 14. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. Now let's pause and just vision this scene for a moment. Imagine you live in this little city. It's your home. It's your safe place. It's your livelihood, right? And one day, suddenly, out of nowhere, unexpectedly, this great and powerful king attacks it by building a siege against it. Now, sieges were... Common, commonly used uh, aspects of warfare, and they're still sometimes used. We're not given the reason for this siege, but here it is upon this little city. A siege is when they basically surround the city. And they're basically going to, um, they're going to cut off resources for them, try to make them dwindle down and become more weak. We have examples of it in Scripture. Jesus foretold of one that did happen in Jerusalem. Jesus tell, tells his disciples in Luke 21.20, he said, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Well, guess what? In 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. Rome came and surrounded Jerusalem, and it was a horrific thing for the Jews at that time. Right now, you're going to turn on the news and see that Israel is putting a siege around Gaza. That very, that right now in our history, and rightfully they should. They're surrounding Gaza with their military, and they've cut off their water supply and their power. The plan of this siege is to dwindle strength and support so that they can invade and take control. After what Hamas has done to them, they have every right to do that. Every right. But here we find in this little city, surrounded by this great king to attack it, it's an unexpected event. So what would happen in this little city? In verse 15, we read, 
But there was found in it a poor wise man, and by his wisdom delivered the city. What do you have in this picture? You have this little city that looked like it had no chance, similar to the unconventional observation Solomon made in verse 11, right? The turtle looks like he has no chance against the rabbit, but here we have something unconventional happen. Though this man is poor, he doesn't have wealth, he's not prominent, but he has something. He's got wisdom. By wisdom, he's able to deliver the city. What does that point us to? It points us to the importance of wisdom in our life. This man and his city had something drastic, unexpected come upon them, and it was wisdom. Wisdom used of him that got him through that very thing. Now we read what happens with him, and and it's a sad thing that happens with him. Though he was wise and delivered the city, we read, yet no one remembered that poor man. It's kind of a sad outcome for him. But that's what happened. It's kind of the same thing Solomon was saying again. Just because you're knowledgeable doesn't mean you're going to have favor. There's these unconventional examples that he's giving us in this account. Now, perhaps that's the reason we don't have a detailed description historically of what Solomon's even referencing. This guy wasn't remembered. Maybe it wasn't recorded. Solomon recorded a portion here, but historically we don't know exactly what he's referencing. But regardless, though we don't know the name of this man, and though he was disregarded by those of his time, his wisdom still stood strong to deliver them. And thus Solomon says in verse 16, But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Even though, even though he didn't get the favor that he should have got, his wisdom was still better than the might of that king. So given the importance of wisdom in this example, what should be our response? Well, just by way of application, letter B, and I'll close with this last point. We ought to seek wisdom and listen to it. We ought to seek wisdom and listen to it. We know that wisdom and its ultimate source comes from where? God, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally. He does not withhold. And so in the next couple verses, Solomon gives a couple of proverbs regarding wisdom that are going to segue into the next chapter where he's going to do some contrasting with wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom and folly. In verse 17, he says, The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of ruler of a ruler among fools. So wise words from a lowly source are far better than loud, foolish words from a high source. We see that a lot today, don't we? Rulers are often shouting great foolishness. You can see that. All you got to do is turn on the news. But many quieter voices proclaim much more wisdom than those who should have wisdom in their high and lofty position. So we ought to be pursuing wisdom by listening to wise words and thereby growing in wisdom for ourselves. Proverbs 8, 1 through 4 kind of gives us the the, the push, the, the urgency of this call, how wisdom calls out. Proverbs 8, 1 through 4, he says, Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand beside the gates in front of the town. 
At the entrance of the portal, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. Wisdom is available to God's people if we just pursue it. If we seek it, we need it. Verse 18, we see somewhat of a contrast to the example Solomon just gave about that little city and the poor wise man who delivered it. He says, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Not only wisdom better than strength, but it's also better than military might, greater than weapons of war, he says. You see, just as the insignificant man here can bring great deliverance through his wisdom, he gives us the opposite kind of man too. Notice what he says, one sinner destroys much good. In other words, one sinner can do a lot of damage, a lot of damage. Now, you consider the many kings in Israel's history who were absolute fools, absolute fools. They come after Solomon, and they end up leading Israel into great, great idolatry and sin and wickedness. What did they do? They brought great destruction on God's people ultimately splitting the nation, right? Consider how one man, Achan, with his one foolish sin, brought great defeat to the entire nation of Israel when they should have overtaken such a small enemy with like a piece of cake. Unconventional thing happens there by God's providence because of judgment on sin. Proverbs 14.34 communicates a little bit of this truth. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, that verse ought to make us concerned about our own nation, shouldn't it? We ought to pray for our nation. But in our own application and broader application, we also ought to be on guard against even what we would call a little sin. For what seemingly seems to be what seemingly is a little sin in our eyes can bring great damage to our life. And wisdom would say, flee from that. So the overall point here from this text is that life is full of time and chance, or rather unexpected events, I'll say it that way. But all of it is under the hand of God's providence. And so we as God's people, what we need to do is trust His providence and seek to know wisdom, for wisdom is truly a great quality to have and one we must have in living this life under the sun, especially through the unexpected occurrences of life. We need to lean on the everlasting arms that hold us eternally. That's a great comfort to us, Christian. God's arms hold us. They surround us because we are His people. And though sometimes providence seems to be dark and gloomy, it's always good in the end because God is good and He's working in ways we can't always understand. So we need to trust Him with that. So I pray these. there's some truths here that could... Um, encourage us, we can glean some things from them, and we can take those and apply them to our life.